just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast where we discuss some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages each week with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast. It's been a week since Qasem Soleimani was assassinated. In this episode, we ask, has Trump's decision actually united the Middle East? Plus, as the Labour leadership contest gets underway, do any of the candidates actually scare the Tories? And finally, is the piggy bank a thing of childhood's past? Ever since he entered the White House, Donald Trump has been trying to isolate Iran diplomatically. But in the weeks since the killing of Qasem Soleimani, it seems that the opposite has happened. John R. Bradley argues in this week's cover piece that Trump's move has united the Sunni Arab states from Saudi Arabia to Qatar in expressing sympathy for Iran and urging restraint. So has the Trump strategy completely backfired? I'm joined by former British ambassador to Saudi Arabia, Sir John Jenkins, and journalist Oz Katachi to discuss. John, things have been moving fairly fast over the past few days with regards to Iran. Does it look as if Trump is now backing away from further military action? I think everybody is. When the attack took place, when Soleimani was, uh, and Mohandas were killed, the, uh, the uproar among the commentariat was, was something to behold. Actually, I don't think it's changed very much strategically in the Middle East at all. I don't think either Iran or America want a war for different reasons. I mean, Trump has always said he wants to pull his troops out and Iran doesn't want a war which it would lose. What it has done, I think, is destroy illusions that there was an alternative future for an Iraq controlled by Iran and the Iran-affiliated hashed militias. And I've just been listening, actually, to to uh, Falah al-Fayyad's uh, eulogy to Qasem Soleimani, and I earlier listened to Hadi al-Emiri and uh, Kaiser al-Khazali talking about it. And if, if anybody had any illusions that these guys <coughs> were not Iran's uh, creatures, or at least fully aligned with Iran, and could be partners in a future Iraq, I think this will have destroyed it forever. What Iran... Uh, wants uh, is what they say they want, which is to make sure that American troops are expelled from Iraq in particular. They say the region, what they mean is Iraq, to a certain extent, Syria, <coughs> and so forth. They've always wanted that. What they'll do now is just use this as a, as a motivating tool for consolidating or reconsolidating their allies, proxies, subalterns, whatever you want to call them in the region, behind that single goal. This is what they're all saying. Oz, John Bradley in this week's issue says that um, rather than uniting the Sunni Arab states against Shia Iran, he's actually... Trump has actually managed to do sort of almost the opposite. Did you agree with that assessment of his? Um, I mean, look, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with that assessment because I think there is a, a significant distinction between the so-called leaders of, of Sunni Arab states and the populations of these Sunni Arab states. The, the leaders of all the Sunni Arab states in the Middle East are, are dictators who run dictatorships, totalitarian dictatorships that often oppress their own people. So... Free democratic governance is as big a threat to these Sunni dictatorships as, well, Sunni-led dictatorships as as they are to the Iranian government. So whether or not it's consolidated the 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 views of the people is not really being reflected here. It's 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 about what the the leaders think. And 
these dictators are, you know, fighting with each other one minute and then in dirty alliances with each other the next minute. I don't think that the, it's necessarily the best way to gauge what the the mood of the Middle East is by by what Mohammed bin Salman his opinion on things are. Certainly, points raised in it were were very true in the fact that I don't think Donald Trump was expecting some of the reaction that that he's got. But at the same time, you know. These dictatorships are not interested in a, in a in a Sunni Shia dispute. What they're interested in is is regional hegemony for themselves and absolute power back at home. And anything that you know might interrupt that is is a threat to them. So this really isn't about Saudi Arabia or or, or the Emirates or Qatar or <clears throat> or whatever. It's about Iran. The thing that persuaded the Saudis to to extend uh, overtures via Kuwait, via Oman, via Pakistan, but and via Iraq. To, to Iran, and these, these were feelers, was, uh, if anything, was the attack on, on Abqaiq. It's, it was a demonstration by, and, and the attack on shipping in the Gulf and so forth. It was, it, it was the demonstration, a clear demonstration by Iran. <coughs> the Saudi Arabia couldn't defend itself effectively against uh, Iran's proxy hybrid grey zone warfare. That's what's happened. The Emirates have always uh, uh, had an ambiguous relationship with Iran. I mean, you think about the amount of Iranian money that goes through Dubai, for example, or was invested in the Dubai property market. His bollar money that goes through there. It's not a simple binary equation. We don't like, I don't think Mohammed bin Zayed likes Iran, but he also understands that you need to find a modus vivendi, especially if you're not going to have the Americans protecting you, which again has been the lesson not just of Trump, but of Obama. When you think about Trump, and there's been a lot of commentary about this which is focused on Trump. Actually, one of the interesting things about Trump, whatever you think about him, are the continuities, the policy continuities in many areas with Obama. <clears throat> this is a long-term trend. Um, so they're hedging their bets, and I'd hedge my bet as if, 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 if I were them as well. There's another point which is, speaks to Oz's point about, about what people think. I think if you look at the protests in, in Iraq, Iran, Lebanon, Brother Field and Sudan and, and Algeria and so forth, those discontents are not going to go away. I, 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 I fully expect the Iraqi security forces to be given instructions to clear all the squares now in Iraq. They've already started doing it down in Nasiriyah in the south, but they'll do it in Baghdad and Basra and so forth. But this won't make those discontents go away, even if Iran manages to extend complete hegemony over Iraq. It's still left with a problem of what you do about a completely dysfunctional state which cannot provide welfare for its inhabitants. And that's the same in Iran as it is in Iraq, as it is in Lebanon, which is now bankrupt, and as it will be in Syria. Oh, do you think it's therefore fair to say that Trump slightly kind of simplified the kind of Sunni-Shia conflict and that's caused a lot of the problems this week? No, I, I think I think Trump fundamentally doesn't have a clue about the <laughs> Sunni-Shia conflict. I don't think he has any idea what he's doing. I think this 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 whole strategy was chosen on a whim, and and reporting from the states certainly seems to suggest you know it was put on a PowerPoint and 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 he if that's to be believed he he chose it. I mean, look. Soleimani's assassination, it might backfire on the US in a massive way if they are forced to, you know, the Iranians wanted the, the US to leave Iraq in the, no matter what. But if they manage to finally do it on the back of Soleimani's assassination, Trump wants troops out of out of the Middle East. You know, that's his personal, personal viewpoint. How good is it strategically for the, the people of the region if they have no counterweight to, mm. to Iran anymore? So, yeah, I don't think Trump knows what he's doing. I think that Soleimani was one of the world's most evil men. And I think he was planning attacks on American targets. And the case for whether or not that makes him a legitimate target, for me, is, is not the most important one. It's mm. strategically what comes next. Strategically killing Soleimani could be justified if you're from the American perspective. 
But if it, if it's justified, what's what's the next logical step? If America's doing it and then it plans on leaving Iraq and Syria to the Iranians, then all you've done is remove one key figure, but allowed the Iranians to achieve that what Soleimani had been aiming to do for years in the first place. John, on Soleimani's death, you wrote yesterday for Coffee House, and you said that for you and other diplomats, it was personal. What exactly did you mean by that? Because we had British troops killed by IEDs and uh, vicious um, bombs with a, with a molten core, which took people's legs off. And throughout the south of Iraq, for something like five years, killed and maimed. When the elements of, of the sad, what were then Sadra special groups, which turned actually into the Zabel Lack, kidnapped Peter Moore and his uh, and his, his close protection team from the one of the Iraqi ministers in 2007, and then shot. I mean, they immediately shot the, the close protection team. I mean, I, you know, I, I was dealing with the families for, for, for two years after that and, and, and when I was in Iraq, and I did some of this when I was director of the Middle East as well. So, it, you know, w- w- the consequences of what Soleimani did and Soleimani inspired, actually, it, I mean, it's not just personal for me. It's personal for a huge number of people. You talk to Syrians about this, Syria, the, the, the Sunnis, to the refugees or the families of those who've been killed. They will all talk about Soleimani as the evil genius of all of this. And, you know, Soleimani had no qualms at all about, about committing mass, mass murder if, if it was in the interest of, of the Islamic revolution. You listen to, to Khamenei in, in his eulogy of, of Soleimani, and he talks about Soleimani as the revolutionary. And, of course, what that means is that he's my guy. He does what I... Because I'm the, I'm the representative of the imam on, on, on earth. I'm the shadow of the imam on earth. And therefore, we were, we were like this. And our main aim is to protect preserve and maintain the Islamic revolution in Iran. Now, the Islamic revolution in Iran is not Iran. It's the regime. It's the people actually who benefited and, and exploited the, the, the last 40 years. And I think what we saw with the demonstrations in Iran, Iraq, is, is that there is a significant number of people in Iran who are Iranian patriots. It's not that they like the Americans, but they, they want a better life than they've got at the moment, the same in Iraq. And I think that, that was the dispensation that, that, that Soleimani was maintaining. So that's what I mean. I mean, also point about a plan is very important. We haven't really had a plan in Iraq for a decade. And one of the reasons why Soleimani thought he was invulnerable was because there had been, according to the US, there had been 90 attacks on US targets since May last year, about 15 since September. Nothing happened. Nothing happened when they shot down a very expensive bit of, bit of military hardware, a surveillance drone, in international airspace last autumn, or when they hit tankers. Nothing happened. There were no red lines. There have been no red lines at all. This isn't a red line. The assassination of Soleimani does not restore deterrence unless there is a plan that goes with it. And, that, and that's the thing I think we're all waiting to see. We know there's an Iranian... I mean, I said in the article the Iranians have no plan. They, actually, they don't have a plan to respond to Soleimani. But what they have is a strategic goal in the region, which is to get the Americans out. Of course, the question for them is, what happens if, what, if they do get the Americans out? What happens then? Because they'll be left with responsibility for these areas. And I don't, in the long run, I think it's a poison chalice for the Iranians. I, I agree, it is, it is a poison chalice. But I mean, I, I have to say, look, I'm a, I'm a very firm believer in international law and the principles of international law. But the man who made the biggest mockery of international law, besides Bashar al-Assad and Vladimir Putin, was Qasem Soleimani. Qasem Soleimani was banned from travelling outside of Iran by the United Nations. So what was he doing in Iraq in the first place? We know what he was doing in Iraq. He was planning more attacks against American troops. I mean, Qasem Soleimani made his mark, as I said in my New Statesman piece, through his unrestrained barbarity towards civilians in Syria and Iraq. Unrestrained barbarity. He he mowed them down in their thousands. And there isn't anyone in this world that, that he was... was willing to lift a finger to stop it and protect those people. Not one person. Not Obama, not Trump, you know, not not Cameron, not May, 
no one seemed to care. So so the idea that, that we're kind of clinging to international law to protect Qasem Soleimani, you know, Iran uses it, the, the guise of international law to work against international law. I think there needs to be a much larger conversation about how do we stop violations and violators of international law. Qasem Soleimani had, had found a way of, of just doing whatever he wanted, killed as many people as he wanted, with sheer impunity. The deterrence argument, has Donald Trump restored deterrence? It just seems like it's vindictive and petty and personal from Donald Trump. I, again, I, I, I was not reading any strategy here. You know, if you want to justify the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, then you're going to have to give me reasons for why now was the right time and uh, what, what comes next in the process. I have very little interest in, in protecting American and British interests in the Middle East. My, my first biggest concern, my primary concern is civilian lives in the Middle East. And no one so far has given a strategy to defending those lives. And if America does go, and Iran is left uh, in control of Syria and Iraq in totality, the, the issue isn't, you know, that, that it's just a, a poison chalice so far. It's that they, they will just kill people. That that's That's their response. Protests, kill them. You know, mild disagreements, kill them. Arrest, torture, imprison, kill them. You know, that's just how Iran operates in the region. John, finally, can I ask you, what, what have you made of Britain's response to this, and in particular Boris Johnson's response? It's been pretty muted. I think, as I said in the piece, you know, we've, we've had this tension, which has been disguised over the last decade, 15 years maybe, of, 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 of whether we act as, as, as an independent, as a powerful foreign policy actor with all the things that it implies, including hard and soft power, or whether we delegate significant bits of this to, to the EU, which has no foreign policy, really. It has, it has a lot of people talking about foreign policy, but it doesn't really have a foreign policy. It's also far more interested in biz, doing business with Iran uh, than uh, human rights. Well, far and, more and, and, and you look at, the, you know, when I talked about national interests, so you have you know, the French, the Germans and so forth, I mean, who, who historically have, have wanted to do business, particularly with, with, with Iran, or delegating significant bits of our foreign policy to the UN, so we are high behind a special representative in the special representative of the Palestinian to the peace process, special representative in Libya, the special representative in Yemen. But actually, it goes nowhere because, in the end, if you want to get something done, it is about hard power. And you need to be prepared to use hard power at appropriate moments. I'm, I'm, I am in favour of protecting British interests in the Middle East, but actually, I think British interests, I mean, this isn't just Kant. The real crisis of the Middle East is governance. And it's been like this since the 1920s. And, and there is not a single example in the Middle East I can think of which really has something that I would call good governance. And good governance is about governing for the people as a whole, because governments don't regard whatever they say in the Constitution. They don't regard the source of legitimacy coming from, from, from the people, although Sistani, interestingly, a couple of months ago said that it did. They regard it as coming from them. And what they do when they get power, as Ibn Khaldun said seven centuries ago, is you use it to loot. And I, I don't think that we on our own can, can, can do this. And in, in the end, this has to be generated within the region. But we have to think much harder about what it is that we collectively do to create the conditions under which these, this sort of governance, which protects all ordinary people so and so forth, can arise. My guess is that most people in the Middle East want this as well. It's to do with the it's relationship between the government. what they're fighting and dying for right now in the streets, essentially, you know, so, yeah. yeah. Oz and John, thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. I'm the host of our weekly books podcast, where we have guests ranging from the authors of fiction to historians and critics and philosophers 
talking about everything and anything to do with the world of books. We've had in recent months, from the thriller writer Lee Child to the historian Peter Frankopan, we've had Deborah Lipstadt on anti-Semitism, Judith Carr on the Mog books, and Wendy Cope on her wonderful poetry. We hope there's something there for everyone, and if you think there might be, all you need to do is search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store or whichever your podcast provider is, and sign up to get a weekly dose of Spectator Books conversation. With Labour's leadership contest now officially underway, do any of the contenders actually worry the Tories? That's the question Katie Balls poses in her political column this week, and she concludes that no, not really, they don't. She joins me now, together with James Mills, former advisor to Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell. Katie, can you start by giving us a brief overview of who the runners and riders are in the Labour contest? Yes, so at the time of writing, I'd like to point out, if anyone is looking at the politics column in this week's Spectator, there were six. Now it looks as though we are having potentially seven candidates. So the two, I think, front runners, if you look at people, the two furthest ahead, you have Keir Starmer, the Shadow Brexit Secretary, and Rebecca Long-Bailey. Rebecca Long-Bailey is seen as the most continuity Corbyn. She recently gave Jeremy Corbyn 10 out of 10 as a leader, uh, which surprised some people given the result and perhaps the party's reputation of anti-Semitism. Then you have Keir Starmer, who many thought was probably more centrist within the Labour Party, but it's fair to say that his pitch so far has been very much leaning left and trying to prove his left-wing credentials, and he's been looking back at his career as a human rights lawyer to make that point. He has the most support so far, and we expect him to have the most support generally from the parliamentary party. And then if you go beyond those two, I think that Jess Phillips has also made quite a splash of her leadership bid. There's a good chance that she is expected to get through the parliamentary stage. You then have an affiliates and local party stage. Um, but I think people think there's a good chance she'll reach the final stage of the membership. Jess Phillips' slogan is, you know, speak truth, win power. I think it's fair to say, I wouldn't call her centrist, but she's not seen as pro-Corbyn. She's been very critical of Jeremy Corbyn in the past. She once told um, Diane Abbott, who is a close ally of Jeremy Corbyn, to F off in a heated meeting. And therefore, she's, she's not naturally one with a membership. She still is very much someone who I think you could say was soft left, but she just has a different way of going about things and not as far as the Corbynites. Then beyond that, you have four candidates now, well, three who are official, who we're not yet sure if they are going to have the MP nominations or the support of affiliates, local parties to reach the membership. Lisa Nandy is one such, um, the MP for Wigan. And Lisa Nandy's talked a lot about rebuilding the, the Red Wall, so the seats that the party lost in the Midlands and the North. And she has impressed MPs this week in Hustings, so I think she is one to watch. And then Emily Thornbury, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, is struggling to get enough MPs to support her not helped by the fact Caroline Flint did a slight drive-by before the contest officially began and basically suggested Emily Thornbury had been rude about Brexit voters. Then you have Clive Lewis, who has been talking about how the problem is Blairism and ultimately you need to um, give the membership more power. So he is on the Corbynite spectrum, but he's not the preferred Corbynite candidate, but he is dipping to that same pool of soft left Corbynite MPs. He could struggle. And then finally, while listeners are still with me, you have (laughs) Barry Gardner, who is considering throwing his hat into the ring. He has been the Shadow International Trade Secretary. He has been a close ally of Jeremy Corbyn. He's often sent onto the airwaves at difficult times over the past couple of months to bat for Corbyn and his shadow government. 
Barry Gardner is an interesting one because there was some view that he, Rebecca Long-Bailey was covering that base. So what is Barry Gardner trying to do here? Well, he's given an interview to Victoria Derbyshire's show saying he's been told by many people that he would win a general election. So he's beginning to believe that, but we have to watch this space. James, the first hurdle that contenders have to pass is the MP stage. Can you tell us what they need to do and who's looking like they might not get through that stage? Yeah, I mean, first off, I'm going to rule myself out of running for the leadership <laughs> race. I think I'm the only one doing it at the moment. No, I, look, where I think on Monday is when they announced this. Um, I think last time I was on your podcast, I was sort of, sort of relatively accurate with my predictions. I think Keir Starmer has already got enough nominations. I think Rebecca Long-Bailey, just in the last like hour, has got over the 22 MP threshold and it will now be on the ballot paper. I suspect Jess Phillips will also get on. And I, as I said before, I've got a sne- sneaky suspicion that Nisa and Andy will probably just creep on and I because I, I also think she'll probably she'll get enough of the MPs and I think she'll probably get a um, trade union nomination as well so that, that'd be my sort of tip of the, and I think it'll be a four person contest right now is sort of the, the quiet period of these things because what's going on is campaign managers will be getting together the teams and you're seeing that slight, the slowly assembling and the MPs and the sort of campaign chairs will normally be a politician will be going around the tea rooms and the bars and they'll be doing this before Christmas as well but also phoning people and trying to get people to either lend them a nomination or persuade to vote for them and that's what you're seeing at the moment and that will go on until uh, I said next week and then, then the contest will, st- will change quite fast because then you go into the second phase which will be what your prospectus is for if you're going for leader to, to be a leader and obviously if you're being deputy leader what what you'll do with that and how, what sort of deputy leader you'll be and then it'll go into the sort of hustings phase and that's when you know you, you're I think the Fabian one and the new states one tend to be quite early on and that's when you'll get the um the policy sort of debate that happens and that's when I think you'll start to get more of the dividing lines that will start to come up that you don't see already and I think that'll become more and that's when you'll start to really get the divides between the candidates but I think for my calculations it's going to be about a a sort of 88 day campaign and the real sort of turning point will be when you essentially after this bit will be when the nominations sorry the ballots open which happens about halfway through around 40 days in Um, that's like the six week period and that's when thing in the first like week or so week and a half is when members tend to vote on bulk so it'll get very quick very quick after next week it'll, there'll be a big real intense period for three or four weeks then it'll die off a little bit after that six week window Katie in your column you talk about Jess Phillips who's one of the candidates and you say she's got a good chance of reaching the membership but she can't go much further than that why is that well she could but she needs to recruit a lot of new members or registered supporters is the theory at least ultimately I think Jess Phillips will struggle with the membership as it currently is partly because and James may have an opinion on this but it still seems as though the membership is broadly loyal to Jeremy Corbyn there's there's many who think he should go but people haven't rejected the Corbyn project and I think that Jess Phillips has been critical enough in the past various things she said um, I think it was one thing about how she would not knife someone in the back and it should knife them in the front and it was a use of language but it upset some people who thought that she was I suppose not being supportive enough and there's been a few incidents like that so the Jess Phillips campaign uh, plan is to Look at what Jeremy Corbyn did in 2015, which was to get a lot of new members or registered supporters to join. Back then it was free pounds and use that to sail through. It's a little bit harder, I think, because it is £25 if you want to be a registered supporter. So it's a slightly higher fee. And also if you just look at, I think, the, the group, they're trying to almost get centrist or quite pro-EU figures to join. I had one member or someone who works 
you know, within that sphere say to me that she could win. She just needs to get 130,000 new people to join, <laughs> which seems like quite a uphill task to be nice particularly when you have quite a tight window if you look at the timings there's 48 hour period for new supporters and I think there's a cutoff date um you know of the 20th of January in terms of new members who are eligible to vote so I I think it doesn't look plain sailing for Jess Phillips and you'll have to see but I, I think it's also worth pointing out that although people around Jess Phillips are talking about copying the Jeremy Corbyn playbook in 2015 when Jeremy Corbyn won the leadership he won with the whole electoral college every specific group he he led in it wasn't just registered supporters and new members James you think that's I mean if they do elect a Corbynite is that going to be wise for the Labour Party or do you think that's a bit of a risky strategy I, I agree with, uh, with what um, Kay just said. I mean, I think you know, essentially Jess would have to basically create the equivalent of her own party to to win this contest. And the YouGov poll that was really interesting, because I don't think that YouGov, I think it'd be a lot closer that YouGov poll uh, indicates because it doesn't include affiliates, which would be about you know eighty to one hundred thousand other votes, which I think will dilute any sort of lead potentially. But I think the uh, the interesting thing in that poll was if you looked at the preference section, people who are ranked seventh, so the most negative views. The first was. Jess Phillips about 27% and then Rebecca Long-Bailey and that sort of so, says the both the polarising candidates in the race and that's but in Rebecca's uh, instance I think that that necessarily shows you that there's a large group of people who are very anti sort of the Corbyn project if you like so that shows there's a poor opposed to her but that also for Jess Phillips it shows there's actually quite a large group of people very very opposed to her and I think because you're so polarised that's why I think Keir Starmer was doing so well because he's able to just come down the middle and I was really worried in 2016 not that Owen Smith would run but that Angela Eagle would run with him because I was really worried that if we didn't win on the first round the, the sort of the soft left that they like call it the sort of candidate would come down the middle and deny us a bit of majority and then what happens in the next round you see under our system because of preferential vote system there's transfers and I think that the high proportion of people who want to vote for Jess Phillips will transfer over to someone like Keir Starmer and not to someone like Rebecca Long-Bailey that's just the dynamics of it coming back to your next question I know there's been a lot of talk I, mean, uh, I read Katie's article it was very good actually quite insightful as well and the idea of that Tories being sort of intimidated by whoever leads if I'm brutally honest Whoever wins probably won't bother the Tories uh, immediately because, look, it's an 80-seat majority government and this is probably one of the most sort of... It's, quite, it's a very confident and um, probably overconfident government, from my honest opinion. And I remember 2005 after we won, that most of the conversations were that we were the natural party of government uh, and, uh, you know, Labour's going to lead forever and the Tories were destroyed and they're going to come back. And we didn't really care too much the first year or two. I think not many people did, to be totally honest with you, with, the, with David Cameron leadership. He was attacked from all sides. It wasn't we got closer to um, around 2007-2008 period just after the crash when events changed and that's why I think there's hope for Labour because you look at the end of the day you know bare minimum we're going to need to win 80 Tory seats or we have to rely on other parties to do the work for us that's a really big uphill task but that said the upside would be look this is a very arrogant Tory government right now whoever wins is going to have a long slog to get back and get even attention in the country but you know I, you know, make a little bit more prediction I actually think that you know look I think we totally it's not just some parties and it's me being professional of you I think that some this Tory government could almost be a sort of lobbyist charter I think it's like you know one Sunday story away from you know a, a corruption scandal I mean you've only saw the uh, recent days a Tory MP taking a ski trip to Davos I mean <laughs> that is very far from the party of David Cameron and George Osborne who are very controlled of their message they're very sort of you know you couldn't even drink champagne at a Tory party conference um, we used to have competitions to try well, and get you, 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 could, you just had to serve it in a wine glass yeah. so people 
I don't but, know. I, mean, it, I, I think this, it shows the, the mood of the Tory party. They're very relaxed. They're very confident. What you're going to see is, because of the nature of having a majority government, you have loads of backbenchers. You have loads of people who feel sort of they don't have enough to do and who will be getting loads of people press upon them. And unlike then, if the Labour Party gets lobbied by trade unionists and social activist groups, the Tory party gets naturally lobbied by big business and business interests in general. If you leave the Labour Party right now, you, it's a long game and you've got to think for the next three years, how do you pull yourself, the, the party together to keep you as much unity as possible, to get yourself in a position that when the country starts to look to us, when the next scandal, when the next recession comes up, because we're overdue one, when the Brexit throws up more than one hurdle and uh, negotiations that, that, that we already think, where can you be a position to party so the country will listen to us and we have those answers? And that's why I say I'm looking at what all the Leeds leaders will have as a policy platform, because it's not just winning the Labour Party contest that matters, it's about what, have you got the, have you got the answers for the questions that are not just come up the road but are there right now and that's why I said like whoever wins this contest that you know it's not going to be clean, plain saying none of them are going to bother, bother the Tories immediately you know that's my sort of like 10 cents on it I guess. James and Katie thank you very much. Hello I'm Olivia Potts and I'm Spectator Life's Vintage Chef and I'm here to tell you about the new Spectator Life website where you can find articles on food and drink, travel, fashion, theatre, cinema, and so much more. And you can also find all the Table Talk podcasts where Lara Prendergast and I talk to notable people about their life through food. Just go to life.spectator.co.uk. And finally, is the treasured piggy bank jangling with change a thing of the past? In our increasingly cashless world, children now rarely have occasion to come into contact with coins and notes. But as writer Laurie Graham asks in this week's issue, how then can kids learn about money, and especially the practice of saving up through good behaviour? Laurie joins me down the line now, and in the studio with me is Iona Bain, financial journalist and author of Spare Change. Laurie, you write in this week's issue of the magazine that you've noticed that your grandchildren no longer receive pocket money. What's going on here? Are they just not doing their chores any longer? (laughs) Oh, if only it were that simple. To be honest, I don't know when this whole pocket money thing started to disappear. I've sort of been, you know, caught napping about it. But it's really struck me how it's not just children. Of course, everyone's relationship with money has sort of changed, you know, because everything's plastic now and we're tapping left and right. And it was actually really brought home to me yesterday because I, I dashed out of the house and I hadn't checked my my bank balance. And I, so I didn't want, you know, the humiliation of having my, my card rejected at a checkout. So I just spent the whole day using cash and it, it completely changed my attitude to using the money. You know, I was keeping, I knew exactly how much I'd got in my purse and I was very careful about what I was spending. So, I mean, it's just, it's a terrible thing that children, uh, children don't have any money in their pockets anymore. And in your piece, you, you mentioned that your granddaughter just says that money now comes from a machine. Do you think there's a sort of disconnect between children knowing what money is and, and where it comes from? Totally, totally. And, and you can see how it's happened. I mean, you know, if the parents go to work and then they might see their parents do, say, a supermarket shop online and then the groceries magically appear. And you, at no point do you see any cash changing hands. So, you know, so how, how can you learn? And, and it's, it's such a shame because when, with cash, children used to learn you know, how, to, how to earn it and how to save it. 
and, and how to enjoy it, to spend it. Iona, you run the website Young Money. Do you get a sense that younger people are missing out on an early financial education? Yes, because personal finance education is technically on the curriculum in schools, but it's only on the syllabus in high schools. And research shows that actually children form their attitudes to money by the age of about six or seven and they may be getting some ideas about money as early as three. So it's clear that we need to be having these financial conversations much earlier, probably much earlier than parents think, because when I talk about this uh, with parents, they are shocked. They think their children are completely innocent when it comes to money, but they could already be forming a lot of their ideas about money and looking to you as an example as well and seeing how you spend money and save money and maybe inclined to copy your example as well. So I think because personal finance education has to happen in the home, we need to think about what that looks like. And for young children, actually, they do still need to be handling physical cash because that's the only way they're going to understand the tangible value of money. And I did a uh, documentary for Radio 4 a couple of years ago about financial education. And we went to a primary school and it was a centre for personal finance education excellence. And what they were doing there was role play. They were pretending to have banks and shops in the classroom. And the kids were loving it. They were having a great time. But more importantly, they were also handling toy money and realising a really important concept, which is that once money is gone, it's gone. But as Laurie says in her piece, obviously, you know, even for adults, they're not using cash as much. I mean, how do you how do you teach children to use cash if, if adults aren't even really using it? It's true because now young people will be managing most of their money digitally. We have the advent of open banking, which potentially means you could manage all your financial affairs from your phone or even from one app. But I also think there is a place for cash. I mean, on the way here, for instance, there were a couple of older war veterans who were collecting for charity. They didn't have a card reader, so I had a pound and I could put it in their box. Laurie, in your piece, you talk about an experiment that you carried out with your granddaughter. Can you, can you, can you tell us a bit about that and, and what you learned and also what, what she learned from it? Yeah, yeah she want, there was a doll she wanted to buy. It, it wasn't an expensive thing. And, you know, she was going on about it and her, I could see her parents were going, to, were going to give in and buy her the damn thing. So um, <laughs> I, I, I'd also noticed, because I was staying with them, that she didn't make her bed in the morning. So I thought, well, you know, here's a, you know... <laughs> It's a learning opportunity. So I sort of set her a challenge and I, we agreed a tariff. And I said, if she made her bed every morning, this is what she would earn. And uh, I let, when I left, I left cash with her parents. Um, so after 10 weeks, which was the, you know, the time spread for the experiment, she'd got enough money for the doll. Uh, so that was also she was you know, now automatically making her bed every morning so that was a win-win but the other funny thing was that she now wasn't sure she wanted to spend the money on the doll so mm. this is this is a very powerful lesson learned that if you have to save up for something and you can see the pile of money growing and makes you kind of prudent in a child you know at a child's level prudent about what you're going to spend it on. I mean, that was an amazing education that you provided in such a short space of time. And it's a really easy thing that all parents and grandparents could do. And actually, you can do it with digital tools. So now there are accounts available such as GoHenry and Osper, and they are purely online, but you can 
essentially give your child a debit card. They can spend it, but you can also download an app and monitor your child's spending. And they can set up a savings goal. They can name that savings goal if they want to buy a toy or a gadget. They can put money towards that goal, see it in their app, and then use it for the things that they want. So it can be a cash-based process, but you can also do it online to really make sure that they are learning about this new digital world. Laurie, do you think that's something that your grandchildren might be interested in? Can you hear the inner groan? (laughs) You know, my children, who they grew up in the 1970s, they used to play at shops. I mean, you know, everything I described is terribly sort of structured and formal. And children just used to learn by playing. It wasn't a big deal. And also, you know, by the time my children were, say, nine, the age of this granddaughter now, they were all capable of walking, taking some cash, walking to the corner shop, you know, and either buying me a carton of milk or, or you know, spending some money they wanted to spend on sweets, because children don't buy sweets anymore. Probably I shouldn't be saying that. At the very idea of the digital applications, I mean, I know they're there. And sure, my grandchildren will know about them and be able to use them very, very competently. But it's, you know, handling cash is is such an important confidence for children to, to achieve. And the other thing is that money, cash, is quite interesting, you know, coins, coins. Well, perhaps not so much these days, but coins can be a thing of beauty. My grandparents were of the generation that still used farthings, a little brown coin with a picture of a wren. Was it a wren or a robin? A wren, I think. And, you know, you'd find them on the attic floor. I mean, let's hear it for, I don't know if I can pronounce this, numismatists. Are they the people who collect (laughs) coins? I do certainly agree that cash does still have a place in society and I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I think rural communities are still going to need to use cash. Local businesses will still need to use cash. But I think the digital world is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. It is the way that most young people will manage their finances in the future. And it's such an overwhelming complex consumer landscape facing young people today we need to give them a fighting chance of being able to to understand the value of money but through these new digital forms finally laurie you mentioned coins and in your piece you also mentioned the tooth fairy and i'm gonna have to ask you what what is the going rate these days for a tooth because it seems to be one of the few times children do still receive a coin yeah yeah, well i I was told a pound but i've told you know that it's it's heading upwards now inflation (laughs) Yes. And and I and as for pocket money, and I would love, you know, if, if any of you sitting there in London have any suggestions, you know, what is a reasonable pocket money rate now for, say, a five year old or a 10 year old? Because I have no idea. And the parents I've asked have no idea because they don't, you know pocket they don't do pocket money anymore Mm. well actually the average age that a child receives pocket money is about eight or nine so five may be a bit too soon to start having your own money but at eight I think it's about a fiver that's the going rate for pocket money and then it kind of gradually goes up but a really important point to make here is that as soon as possible children do need to start earning their own money but we also need to move them away from the model of being paid for chores because the problem is that They'll get to 18 and they'll feel resentful about having to do the washing up for free 
and some and some of them will have to pay someone to do the washing up <laughs> if they get that busy. Mm, yeah, I was glad to see that the Scouts brought back Bob a job a few years ago. <laughs> it's not Bob a job anymore, of course. <laughs> Whatever it is, I thought you know that's not a bad thing. Thank you, Laurie and Iona, and that's everything this week. If you pick up the latest issue, you can, as ever, read all of the pieces we've talked about, as well as more from Robert Toombs, Ben Schott and Thomas Penn. And we've got a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12 at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. And as we're feeling generous, we'll even throw in a free £20 Amazon voucher. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week. (laughs) 